I have been assigned the topic of the biblical doctrine of maleness. Uh, it is fundamental to all that we say about the responsibilities that, that men have. There could just as easily be a biblical doctrine of femaleness as presented. That is not my task. And so this is not designed in any sense to highlight maleness as a superior theology to that of femaleness, but to show what is at stake in our understanding of the fundamental of creation principle, redemptive principle that is involved in maleness. Genesis 1 says, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2. <laughs> then God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Man was considered plural from the beginning, and then from him descended all the nations of all mankind with all of their diverse traits. Richly and mysteriously, this massive diversity was present in the seed, the sperm of the man, and through the centuries, the rich, intriguing, virtually infinite variations of the single essence of humanity finds expression in all the persons ever born. Two genders would constitute man, for the race itself cannot continue apart from the union of the two genders. Man, or humanity, consisted of male and female. Adam was created male and adult, and his seed, sperm, coexisted with him. No other living thing in the created order was fit for him in his task of producing those in his likeness. The woman was created from the body of the man, and thus had the same DNA, 
Contained within the male sperm, therefore, was the amazing diversity that eventually developed throughout the entire world, since all nations on the face of the earth have descended from the one man, Acts 17, 26. Thus, when the divine discourse said, let us make man in our image, he immediately indicated that in the male, the singularity of essence and the diversity in persons immediately was present. The reality of maleness radically, that is at the root, involved in God's eternal purpose as it is manifested in one, creation, two, covenant, three, redemptive transformation, and four, in the revelation of God's own internal being. In this brief discussion, therefore, certain ideas will appear more than once, for it is impossible to avoid their intersectionality in God's redemptive revelation. All of humanity was considered as being created in the creation of Adam, and then from Adam, Eve. In the male, therefore, Adam, <clears throat> the entire race was included both federally and naturally. All humanity would flow from the seed of Adam. Even Christ, who came from the seed of the woman, still descended from Adam, since woman came from man. Even the necessity of the fertilization of Eve's egg through the act of fecundity by the Holy Spirit shows the pivotal importance of maleness. No human comes into existence subsequent to Adam and Eve apart from the fertilization of the egg. This emphasizes how the entire race received its natural corruption through the seed of Adam. For Christ alone came from the seed of a woman whose egg was not fertilized by a man, but her egg, still with full human potential, was fertilized in a special creative act by the Holy Spirit, so that the humanity of Jesus, connected to Adam derivatively, but from Eve, <coughs> uh, but derivatively from Eve, but not directly through a male seed, was a full humanity with sin only accepted. Paul explains this by developing the theological point from the creation fact that man is not from woman, but woman from man, 1 Corinthians 11:9. Thus, we see the priority of the male in creation and the reality that from his body, the population of the world depends. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 1:28. The original intent of creation, the population of the earth, including its massive and seemingly unending diversity, rested on the males depositing his seed in the female. God kept them from conceiving until the time of testing was over, but after the fall, the text tells us, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, conceived again and bore Abel, and after the death of Abel, she conceived and bore Seth. Adam lived for 930 years, and he had sons and daughters. Even after the fall, this command was still intact. After the flood, God told Noah and his sons and their wives, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it, Genesis 9-7. Paul goes on to make the point in 1 Corinthians 11 that it is equally certain that the combination of the two genders is necessary for execution of God's purpose in creation. He says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. 
For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. In this reciprocity of relationship, Paul still is talking about the fundamental function of maleness and femaleness of giving rise biologically to succeeding generations. But all descending originally from the male as the original image bearer from whom all image bearers would descend. So our second point, within maleness, we find the consistent reminder and the palpable fulfillment of God's promise to redeem a people for himself. <clears throat> All beings come, therefore, from the creative power and original purpose of God. All human beings come into existence originally from the male. Because of this original fact, even though the Christ is born of a woman, it is the seed of the woman, Nevertheless, he still is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1, 1, having come from the seed of David, according to the flesh. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam, ending with these words, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the son of God. Jesus, though not the son of Joseph, stands in continuity with the entire race through Adam. He is the second or last Adam, not establishing his future seed from a biological standpoint, but from a covenantal standpoint. Hebrews applies Isaiah 8, 18 to Jesus when the prophet wrote, Behold, I and the children God has given me. The writer goes on to explain why Jesus had true humanity as a prerequisite to his having children, even those whom he could designate also as his brothers. Therefore, the text says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil and free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives, Hebrews 2, 14, 15. Here we see the seed of the woman bruising the devil's head. The covenantal promise to Abraham was sealed in the most distinctive mark of maleness. The text says, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. My covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. The sign of circumcision was to serve as a seal to the promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations and he would be exceedingly fruitful. This covenant was to be an everlasting covenant. Every time a male was circumcised, it was a reminder that the development of the covenant people depended on the seed of the male and the call of begetting. 
the multiplication of the people into a nation in its most basic reality depended on the function of the male organ of those descending from Abraham. If one were not circumcised, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If a male child is born and the foreskin is not cut off, then that person himself shall be cut off from the people. Covenant maintainers must have the mark of the covenant. In this light, we can understand the unusual episode in the life of Moses in Exodus 4, 24 through 26. The Lord told Moses that when Pharaoh does not let the people go, he is to tell him, but if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Immediately, Moses inserts the event described in these words. At the encampment, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. The next sentence says, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. That is, God didn't kill him. Then she said, A husband of blood. And Moses explains, because of the circumcision. Liberals have joined Zipporah in her exclamation in denying a blood atonement. With pious incredulity and a tone of superior piety, they spoke, ah, oh, a religion of blood. Apart from Moses embracing the truth that a nation that begets sons of God can receive their sons only through blood, God would not send Moses to be a deliverer, but would kill him first. God himself is the husband of blood, to his bride, for before the son can beget in the very place that begetting originates, he must shed his own blood. Every circumcision was to remind the descendants of Abraham that the covenant people come into being through a begetter who carries the indelible mark of the covenant. The son of God in his incarnation pursued his earthly mission always with the mark of the eternal covenant upon him. God placed his grace on us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.9 Jesus' entire life was marked by covenant faithfulness, coming not to do his own will, that is, a will that he might have devised for himself in his temporal humanity, but the will of the Father who sent him covenantally to accomplish that arrangement of the eternal covenant. The mark of the covenant drove Jesus to consummate his task. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very purpose I came to this hour. The Holy Spirit, in his manifold operations, both in the life of Christ himself and in his work of calling and begetting the elect ones of God, bore in every operation the mark of the eternal covenant. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Christ, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, being justified by his grace. This hope of eternal life is the very hope that was promised before the ages began, Titus 
It stood as a symbol that people become children of God only through the distinctive mark of covenantal begetting. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Peter looks at the Father's operation in terms of a begetting upon the basis of a completed and fully acceptable work of the Son in His bloodshedding for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Circumcision in the begetting organ of the male stood as a constant reminder that the covenant was to be fulfilled in the bloodshedding of the Son. We again see the importance of the pure aboriginal maleness in the building up of the nation of Israel through the seed of the man Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, Genesis 32, 28. Leah conceived four times, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, hoping on the first three occasions to seal the love of Jacob for her. But on the fourth, she consented in spirit only to praise the Lord. Rachel, being barren for the time being, gave her handmaid to Jacob with instructions, go into her that she may bear on my knees. This happened twice, and the sons were named Dan and Naphtali. Leah then did the same thing, giving her handmaid to Jacob. And Zilpah bore two children to him, Gad and Asher. In a bargain for mandrakes gathered by Reuben, Rachel told Leah, therefore he, that is Jacob, may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes, Genesis 30, 15. Then the text tells us frankly, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. She bore Jacob his fifth son by, him, by her and named him Issachar, a son she considered wages from the Lord because I gave my maid to my husband. Then a sixth son she bore named Zebulun and afterwards a daughter named Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb and she gave birth to Joseph. Later Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, Genesis 35, 19, in the midst of what we might call a, uh, or consider a bizarre set of events and relationships, we nevertheless can see that embedded within the entire story is the importance of maleness. The male seed was to carry on the covenantal promise to Abraham. Born by four different women, Jacob's seed gave rise to the fathers of the tribes who would fulfill God's promise to Abraham in giving him the land of Canaan as a temporal possession, and the new land as an everlasting possession. Also, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, Genesis 17, 8. And then Isaiah tells us, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be, rem be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For 
Behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor, nor the voice of crying. Again, we see even in the biological continuity, however, and the perpetuity of the entire race biologically, we find a covenantal line maintained by propagation. Deuteronomy 25, beginning with verse 5, reads, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It is for this reason that God killed Onan when he spilled his seed on the ground rather than deposit it in Tamar, Genesis 38.10. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. He did not Onan did not want to raise up children for his deceased brother. He wanted sovereignty over his own seed and over the propagation of the covenantal purpose of God. We find in the Lucan genealogy this strange lineup. The son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Through Tamar, whom Oman, Onan refused to impregnate, but who was impregnated by her father-in-law in Aruz, the line of David and the line of Jesus was to come. Also, Obed was the son of Ruth by Boaz, and Ruth was the daughter of Moab, the son of Noah by one of his daughters. However we might judge these things in light of virtuous manhood or sexual morality, it is clear that apart from these vital considerations, maleness itself, the deposition of seed is intrinsically elemental to God's covenantal redemptive purposes in the world. It is for this reason that we find the unusual law concerning a fight between two men, and the wife of one intervenes. Deuteronomy 25, 11 and 12. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by, by the private parts, 
then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. In a raid, she has sought to undo the maleness of one of the men. She has intruded into the purpose of God by rendering him unable to propagate. Both the creation mandate and the covenant of redemption depend in human terms on the specific ability God gave the male to propagate. The idea of begottenness reaches deep into the eternal relations within the Trinity. This leads us to a third point then. We've seen the population of, of the earth and maleness. We've seen the, the reality of covenantal faithfulness. And now we see the principle of maleness serves as an analogy for the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and subsequent progressive conformity to Christ. Note how the apostle assumes that sameness of nature is communicated in the process of begetting. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Jesus establishes a spiritual race. He serves as a sinless, righteous head of this race, sanctifying each of them, setting them apart, not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, the word is spora, derived from spiro, just as sperma is. This is the same incorruptible seed through whom the humanity of Jesus was established with the egg of the Virgin Mary. As he established the humanity of Jesus, he establishes the spirituality of those given over to carnality, those without life, dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, though like us in all things, not afraid to call us his brethren, nor hesitate to call us his children, Jesus himself was holy, blameless, undefiled, set apart from sinners, and has become exalted above the heavens. Since he is righteous, we know uh, we are born of him if we carry the same spiritual trait as dominant in our spiritual focus, righteousness. Not only, however, was he free of original sin as a man by the Holy Spirit's coming upon the Virgin Mary, but his path to unblemished righteousness as a man, though as a person, impeccable, his unblemished manhood was accompanied or, or accomplished in the power of the Spirit, since it was through the eternal Spirit that Jesus offered himself unblemished to God. By that same spirit we find produced in us that pilgrimage of purity. If we practice righteousness, we are born of him. Again, in 1 John 3, 9, we read, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, sperma, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Even as the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit, Romans 5, 5, so His holy nature is communicated to us by His presence for the reproductive power of the sperma determines that we shall be holy, for He is holy. The fourth point. In the propagation of those in His nature, Adam gave testimony to the eternal generation of the Son. In Genesis 5, 1 through 3, we read this narrative of the continuity of likeness. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. 
he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The phrase, he who was born of God, refers to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And is also said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The eternally generated Son of God protects those born in time out of the provisions of the eternal covenant of redemption. The one born of God keeps him. The writer of Hebrews cites the verse from Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you, as a reference to the relations of the father and the son before the incarnation. And also 2 Samuel 7-14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The writer treats these verses as referring to a pre-mundane relationship when he gives a consecutive examples of how it is that we consider Christ in his, in his deity. When he says, after saying, today I have begotten you, then he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Further assurance that this is speaking of the eternal relation of father and son in the text of Romans 2, 7 itself, the text says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All of the promises related to the power and victory of the son arose from the decree of God established before the foundation of the world. And th thus the declaration, you are my son. Today I have begotten you is an affirmation of an eternal relation within the Godhead. The operation of maleness in propagating persons, begetting persons in our own nature, is a testimony to the eternal relation within the triune God. So, a concluding section. Don't mess with maleness. <clears throat> a denial of the absoluteness of maleness is an example of the most fundamental rebellion against God's eternal order of creation and redemption and the very nature of God himself, his eternal power and Godhead. So A, the ideology of fluidity and gender identity is an example of an attack on God's intent in the creation of creation in the population of the world. It arises from the perversion of human corruption or as an instance of personal rebellion. B, the ideology of gender fluidity disregards God's covenantal purpose established in the seed of Abraham. C, 
the ideology of gender fluidity throws aside any relevance to the covenant of redemption as seen imaged in the rite of circumcision. D, the ideology of gender fluidity throws aside the absoluteness of the internal relations within the triune God. E, the practice of abortion is sinful because one, it takes a human life, and two, it is an assault on the fundamental function of maleness. F, to ignore the biblical pattern of relations between men and women in family, society, and church is to ignore the deeply embedded concept of maleness in Scripture. 